Chapter 30, Part 2 of the Commentaries on the Laws of England, Book 2, by William Blackstone. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Roy Haynes. Of Title by Gift, Grant, and Contract, Part 2. 2. Bailment, from the French, bailler, to deliver, is a delivery of goods in trust upon a contract expressed or implied that the trust shall be faithfully executed on the part of the bailey, as if cloth be delivered, or, in our legal dialect, bailed, to a tailor to make a suit of clothes. He has it upon an implied contract to render it again when made, and that in a workmanly manner. If money or goods be delivered to a common carrier, to convey from Oxford to London, he is under a contract in law to pay or carry them to the person appointed. If a horse or other goods be delivered to an innkeeper or his servants, he is bound to keep them safely and restore them when his guest leaves the house. If a man takes in a horse or other cattle to graze and depasture in his grounds, which law calls adjustment, he takes them upon an implied contract to return them safe to the owner. If a pawnbroker receives plate or jewels as a pledge or security for the repayment of money lent thereon at a day certain, he has them upon an express contract or condition to restore them if the pledgeor performs his part by redeeming them in due time. For the due execution of which contract Many useful regulations are made by statute 30 George II, C24. And so, if a landlord distrains goods for rent, or a parish officer for taxes, these are for a time only a pledge in the hands of the distrainers, and they are bound by an implied contract in law to restore them on payment of the debt, duty, and expenses before the time of sale, or, when sold, to render back the overplus. If a friend delivers anything to his friend to keep for him, the receiver is bound to restore it on demand, and it was formally held that in the meantime he was answerable for any damage or loss it might sustain, whether by accident or otherwise, unless he expressly undertook to keep it only with the same care as his own goods, and then he should not be answerable for theft or other accidents. But now the law seems to be settled upon a much more rational footing, that such a general bailment will not charge the bailey with any loss unless it happens by gross neglect, which is construed to be an evidence of fraud. But if the bailey undertakes specially to keep the goods safely and securely, he is bound to answer all perils and damages that may befall them for want of the same care with which a prudent man would keep his own. In all these instances, there is a special qualified property transferred from the bailor to the bailee together with the possession. It is not an absolute property in the bailee because of his contract for restitution, and the bailor hath nothing left in him but the right to a chosen action grounded upon such contract, the possession being delivered to the bailey. And, 
on account of this qualified property of the bailee, he may, as well as the bailor, maintain an action against such as injure or take away these chattels. The tailor, the carrier, the innkeeper, the adjusting farmer, the pawnbroker, the distrainer, and the general bailee may all of them vindicate in their own right this their possessory interest against any stranger or third person. 4. As such bailee is responsible to the bailor if the goods are lost or damaged by his willful default or gross negligence, or if he do not deliver up the chattels on lawful demand, it is therefore reasonable that he should have a right to recover either these specific goods or else a satisfaction in damages against all other persons who may have purloined or injured them, that he may always be ready to answer the call of the bailor. 3. Hiring and borrowing are also contracts by which a qualified property may be transferred to the hirer or borrower, in which there is only this difference, that hiring is always for a price, a stipend, or additional recompense, Borrowing is merely gratuitous, but the law in both cases is the same. They are both contracts whereby the possession and a transient property is transferred for a particular time or use on condition and agreement to restore the goods so hired or borrowed as soon as the time is expired or use performed, together with the price or stipend in the case of hiring either expressly agreed on by the parties or left to be implied by law according to the value of the service. By this mutual contract, the hirer or borrower gains a temporary property in the thing hired, accompanied with an implied condition to use it with moderation and not abuse it, and the owner or lender retains a reversionary interest in the same and acquires a new property in the price or reward. Thus, if a man hires or borrows a horse for a month, he has the possession and a qualified property therein during that period, on the expiration of which his qualified property determines and the owner becomes, in the case of hiring, entitled to the premium or price for which the horse was hired. There is one species of this price or reward, the most usual of any, but concerning which many good and learned men have in former times very much perplexed themselves and other people by raising doubts about its legality in formo conscientiae. That is, when money is lent on a contract to receive not only the principal sum again, but also an increase by way of compensation for the use, which is generally called interest by those who think it lawful and usury by those who do not so. It may not be amiss, therefore, to enter into a short inquiry upon what footing this matter of interest or usury does really stand. The enemies to interest in general make no distinction between that and usury, holding any increase of money to be indefensively usurious. And this they ground as well on the prohibition of it by the law of Moses among the Jews as upon what is laid down by Aristotle, that money is naturally barren, and to make it breed money is preposterous, and a perversion of the end of its institution, which was only to serve the purposes of exchange and not of increase. Hence, 
the school divines have branded the practice of taking interest as being contrary to the divine law, both natural and revealed, and the canon law has prescribed it taking any, the least increase for the loan of money, as a mortal sin. But, in answer to this, it may be observed that the Mosaical precept was clearly a political and not a moral precept. It only prohibited the Jews from taking usury from their brethren the Jews, but in express words permitted them to take it of a stranger, which proves that the taking of moderate usury, or a reward for the use, or so the word signifies, is not malam in se, since it was allowed where any but an Israelite was concerned. And as to Aristotle's reason, deduced from the natural barrenness of money, the same may with equal force be alleged of houses which never breed houses, and twenty other things which nobody doubts it is lawful to make a profit of by letting them to hire. And though money was originally used only for the purposes of exchange, yet the laws of any state may be well justified in permitting it to be turned to the purposes of profit, if the convenience of society, the great end for which money was invented, shall require it. And that the allowance of moderate interest tends greatly to the benefit of the public, especially in a trading country, will appear from that generally acknowledged principle that commerce cannot subsist without mutual and extensive credit. Unless money, therefore, can be borrowed, trade cannot be carried on. And if no premium were allowed for the hire of money, few persons would care to lend it, or at least the case of borrowing at a short warning, which is the life of commerce, would be entirely at an end. Thus, in the dark ages of monkish superstition and civil tyranny, when interest was laid under a total interdict, Commerce was also at its lowest ebb, and fell entirely into the hands of the Jews and Lombards. But when men's mind began to be more enlarged, when true religion and real liberty revived, commerce grew again into credit, and again introduced itself, its inseparable companion, the doctrine of loans upon interest. And, really, considered abstractly from this its use, since all other conveniences of life may either be bought or hired, but money can only be hired, there seems no greater impropriety in taking a recompense or price for the hire of this than of any other convenience. If I borrow a hundred pounds to employ in a beneficial trade, it is but equitable that the lender should have a proportion of my gains. To demand an exorbitant price is equally contrary to conscience for the loan of a horse or the loan of a sum of money. But a reasonable equivalent for the temporary inconvenience the owner may feel by the want of it, and for the hazard of his losing it entirely, is not more immoral in one case than it is in the other. And indeed, the absolute prohibition of lending upon any, even moderate interest, introduces the very inconvenience which it seems meant to remedy. The necessity of individuals will make borrowing unavoidable. Without some profit allowed by law, there will be but few lenders, and those principally bad men who will break through the law and take a profit, and then will endeavor to indemnify themselves from the danger of the penalty by making that profit exorbitant. Thus, 
While all degrees of profit were discountenanced, we find more complaints of usury and more flagrant instances of oppression than in modern times when money may be easily had at a low interest. A capital distinction must therefore be made between a moderate and exorbitant profit, to the former of which we usually give the name interest, to the latter the truly odious appellation of usury. The former is necessary in every civil state, if it were but to exclude the latter, which ought never to be tolerated in any well-regulated society. For, as the whole of this matter is well summed up by Grotius, if the compensation allowed by law does not exceed the proportion of the hazard run, or the want felt, by the loan, its allowance is neither repugnant to the revealed nor the natural law, but if it exceeds those bounds, it is then oppressive usury, and though the municipal laws may give it impunity, they never can make it just. We see that the exorbitance or moderation of interest for money lent depends on two circumstances, the inconvenience of parting with it for the present and the hazard of losing it entirely. The inconvenience to individual lenders can never be eliminated by laws. The rate, therefore, of general interest must depend upon the usual or general inconvenience. This results entirely from the quantity of specie or current money in the kingdom. For, the more specie there is circulating in any nation, the greater superfluity there will be, beyond what is necessary to carry on the business of exchange and the common concerns of life. In every nation or public community, there is a certain quantity of money thus necessary, which a person well skilled in political arithmetic might perhaps calculate as exactly as a private banker can the demand for running cash in his own shop. All above this necessary quantity may be spared or lent without much inconvenience to the respective lenders, and the greater this national superfluity is, the more numerous will be the lenders, and the lower ought the rate of national interest be. But where there is not enough, or barely enough, circulating cash to answer the ordinary uses of the public, interest will be proportionably high, for lenders will be but few, as few as can submit to the inconvenience of lending. So also, the hazard of entire loss has its weight in the regulation of interest. Hence, the better the security, the lower will the interest be the rate of interest being generally in a compound ratio formed out of the inconvenience and the hazard. And as, if there were no inconvenience, there should be no interest, but what is equivalent to the hazard. So, if there were no hazard, there ought to be no interest, save only what arises from the mere inconvenience of lending. Thus, if the quantity of specie in a nation be such, that the general inconvenience of lending for a year is computed to amount to 3%. A man that has money by him will perhaps lend it upon good personal security at 5%, allowing two for the hazard run. He will lend it upon landed security or mortgage at 4%, the hazard being proportionally less. But he will lend it to the state, on the maintenance of which all his property depends, at 3% the hazard being none at all. But sometimes the hazard may be greater than the rate of interest allowed by law will compensate, and this gives rise to the practice, one, of bottomry, or 
Respondentia, two of policies of insurance, and first, Bottomry, which originally arose from permitting the master of a ship in a foreign country to hypothecate the ship in order to raise money to refit, is in the nature of a mortgage of a ship, where the owner takes up money to enable him to carry on his voyage and pledges the keel or bottom of the ship, paras pro toto, as a security for the repayment, in which case it is understood that, if the ship be lost, the lender loses also his whole money, but if it returns in safety, then he shall receive back his principal, and also the premium or interest agreed upon, however it may exceed the legal rate of interest. And this is allowed to be a valid contract in all trading nations, for the benefit of commerce, and by reason of the extraordinary hazard run by the lender. And in this case, the ship and tackle, if brought home, are answerable, as well as the person of the borrower, for the money lent. But if the loan is not upon the vessel, but upon the goods and merchandise, which must necessarily be sold or exchanged in the course of the voyage, then only the borrower, personally, is bound to answer the contract, who therefore, in this case, is said to take up money at respondentia. These terms are also applied to contracts for the repayment of money borrowed, not on the ship and goods only, but on the mere hazard of the voyage itself. When a man lends a merchant a thousand pounds to be employed in a beneficial trade, with conditions to be repaid with extraordinary interest in case such voyage be safely performed, which kind of agreement is sometimes called Voenus Nauticum and sometimes Usura Maritima. But, as this gave an opening for usurious and gaming contracts, especially on long voyages, it was enacted by the statute 19 George II, C. 37, that all monies lent on bottomry or at respondentia on vessels bound to or from the East Indies shall be expressly lent only upon the ship or upon the merchandise, that the lender shall have the benefit of salvage, and that, if the borrower has not on board effects to the value of the sum borrowed, he shall be responsible to the lender for so much of the principal as hath not been laid out, with legal interest and all other charges, though the ship and merchandise be totally lost. Secondly, a policy of insurance is a contract between A and B that upon A's paying a premium equivalent to the hazard run, B will indemnify or insure him against a particular event. This is founded upon one of the same principles as the doctrine of interest upon loans, that of hazard, but not that of inconvenience. For if I insure a ship to the Levant and back again at 5%, here I calculate the chance that she performs her voyage to be 20 to 1 against being lost, and if she be lost, I lose 100 pounds and get 5 pounds. Now this is much the same as if I lent the merchant whose whole fortunes are embarked in this vessel, a hundred pounds at the rate of eight percent. For by alone I should be immediately out of my money, the inconvenience of which we have computed equal to three percent. If therefore I had actually lent him a hundred pounds, I must have added three pounds on the score of inconvenience to the five pounds allowed for the hazard, which together would have made eight pounds. But 
as a pawn in insurance, I am never out of my money till the loss actually happens. Nothing is therein allowed upon the principle of inconvenience, but all upon the principle of hazard. Thus, too, in a loan, if the chance of repayment depends upon the borrower's life, it is frequent, besides the usual rate of interest, for the borrower to have his life insured till the time of repayment, for which he is loaded with an additional premium suited to his age and constitution. Thus, if Sempronius has only an annuity for his life, and would borrow a hundred pounds of Titius for a year, the inconvenience and general hazard of this loan we have seen are equivalent to five pounds, which is therefore the legal interest. But there is also a special hazard in this case, for if Sempronius dies within the year, Titius must lose the whole of his hundred pounds. Suppose this chance to be one to ten. It will follow that the extraordinary hazard is worth ten pounds more, and therefore the reasonable rate of interest in this case would be fifteen percent. But this the law, to avoid abuses, will not permit to be taken. Sempronius therefore gives Titius the lender only five pounds the legal interest, but applies to Gaius an insurer, and gives him the other ten pounds to indemnify Titius against the extraordinary hazard, and in this manner may extraordinary or particular hazard be provided against, which the established rate of interest will not reach, that being calculated by the state to answer the ordinary and general hazard, together with the lender's inconvenience in parting with his specie for a time. The learning relating to maritime insurances have of late years been greatly improved by a series of judicial decisions which have now established the law in such a variety of cases that, if well and judiciously collected, they would form a very complete title in a code of commercial jurisprudence. But, being founded on equitable principles, which chiefly result from the special circumstances of the case, it is not easy to reduce them to any general heads in mere elementary institutes. Thus much may, however, be said, that being contracts, the very essence of which consists in observing the purest good faith and integrity, they are vacated by any the least shadow of fraud or undue concealment, and, on the other hand, being much for the benefit and extension of trade, by distributing the loss or gain among a number of adventurers, they are greatly encouraged and protected by both common law and acts of parliament. But, as a practice had obtained, of insuring large sums without having any property on board, which were called insurances, interest or no interest, and also of insuring the same goods several times over, both of which were a species of gaming without any advantage to commerce, and were denominated wagering policies. It is therefore enacted by the statute 19 George II C37 that all insurances, interest or no interest, or without further proof of interest than the policy itself, or by way of gaming or wagering, or without benefit of salvage to the insurer, all which had the same pernicious tendency, shall be totally null and void, except upon privateers or ships in the Spanish and Portuguese trade for reasons sufficiently obvious, and that no reassurance shall be lawful, except the former insurer shall be insolvent, a bankrupt, or dead. And lastly, that in the East India trade, 
a lender of money on bottomry or at respondentia, shall alone have the right to be insured for the money lent, and the borrower shall, in the case of a loss, recover no more upon any insurance than the surplus of his property above the value of his bottomry or respondentia bond. But, to return to the doctrine of common interest on loans. Upon two principles of inconvenience and hazard, compared together, different nations have at different times established different rates of interest. The Romans at one time allowed centesimi, or 12%, to be taken for common loans, but Justinian reduced it to trientis, or one-third of the centesimi, that is, 4% but allowed higher interest to be taken of merchants, because there the hazard was greater. So, too, Grotius informs us that in Holland, the rate of interest was then 8% in common loans, but 12 to merchants. Our law establishes one standard for all alike, where the pledge or security itself is not put in jeopardy, lest under the general pretense of vague and indeterminate hazards, a door should be opened to fraud and usury, leaving specific hazards to be provided against by specific insurances or by loans upon respondentia or bottomry. But as to the rate of legal interest, it has varied and decreased for 200 years past, according as the quantity of species in the kingdom has increased by accessions of trade, the introduction of paper credit, and other circumstances. The statute 37 Henry VIII C9 confined interest to 10%, and so did the statute 13 Elizabeth C8. But as, through the encouragements given in her reign to commerce, the nation grew more wealthy, so under her successor the statute 21 Jacobin 1 C17 reduced it to 8%, as did the statute 12 Charles II C13 to 6, and lastly, by the statute 12 and FT2 C16, it was brought down to 5% yearly, which is now the extremity of legal interest that can be taken. But yet, if a contract which carries interest be made in a foreign country, our courts will direct payment of interest according to the law of that country in which the contract was made. Thus Irish, American, Turkish, and Indian interest have been allowed in our courts to the amount of 12%. For the moderation or exorbitance of interest depends upon local circumstances, and the refusal to enforce such contracts would put a stop to all foreign trade. End of chapter 30, part 2.